Uvula Audio presents The Master Key, Volume 4 Chapter 11, The Man of Science Rob passed the remainder of the day wandering about London and amusing himself by watching the peculiar ways of the people. When it became so dark that there was no danger of his being observed, he rose through the air to the narrow slit in the church tower and lay upon the floor of the little room with the bells hanging all around him to pass the night. He was just falling asleep when a tremendous din and clatter nearly deafened him and set the whole world trembling. It was the midnight chime. Rob clutched his ears tightly, and when the vibrations had died away, descended by the ladder to the lower platform. But even here, the next hourly chime made his ears ring, and he kept descending from platform to platform until the last half of the restless night was passed in the little room at the bottom of the tower. When at daylight the boy sat up and rubbed his eyes, he said wearily, "'Churches are all right as churches,' But as hotels, they rank as failures. I ought to have bunked in with my friend, King Edward. He climbed up the stairs and ladders again and looked out the little window in the belfry. Then he examined his map of Europe. I believe I'll take a run over to Paris, he thought. I must be home again by Saturday to meet the demon, so I'll have to make every day count. Without waiting for breakfast, since he had eaten a tablet the evening before, he crept through the window and mounted into the fresh morning air until the great city with its broad waterway lay spread out beneath him. Then he sped away to the southeast and, crossing the channel, passed between Amiens and Rouen and reached Paris before ten o'clock. Near the outskirts of the city appeared a high tower, upon the flat roof of which a man was engaged in adjusting a telescope. Upon seeing Rob, who was passing at no great distance from the tower, the man cried out, Approchez! Venez! Ici! Then he waved his hands frantically in the air and fairly danced with excitement. So the boy laughed and dropped down to the roof, where, standing beside the Frenchman, whose eyes were actually protruding from their sockets, he asked coolly, Well, what do you want? The other was for a moment speechless. He was a tall man, having a bald head but a thick iron-gray beard, and his black eyes sparkled brightly from behind a pair of gold-rimmed spectacles. After attentively regarding the boy for a time, he said in English, Monsieur, how can you fly without the, the machine? I have myself experimented with some airship, but you... There is nothing to make you go. Rob guessed that here was his opportunity to do the demon a favor by explaining his electrical devices to this new acquaintance, who was evidently a man of science. Here's the secret, Professor, he said, and holding out his wrist displayed the traveling machine and explained as well as he could the forces that operated it. The Frenchman, as you may suppose, was greatly astonished, and to show how perfectly the machine worked, Rob turned the indicator and rose a short distance above the tower, circling about it, before he rejoined the professor on the roof. Then he showed his food tablets, explaining how each was stored with sufficient nourishment for an entire day.
The scientist positively gasped for breath, so powerful was the excitement he experienced at witnessing these marvels. It is wonderful, grand, magnifique, he exclaimed. But here is something of still greater interest, continued Rob, and taking the automatic record of events from his pocket, he allowed the professor to view the remarkable scenes that were being enacted throughout the civilized world. The Frenchman was now trembling violently, and he implored Rob to tell him where he might obtain similar electrical devices. I can't do that, replied the boy, decidedly. But having seen these, you may be able to discover their construction for yourself. Now that you know such things to be possible and practical, the hint should be sufficient to enable a shrewd electrician to prepare duplicates of them. The scientist glared at him with evident disappointment, and Rob continued, These are not all the wonders I can exhibit. Here is another electrical device that is perhaps the most remarkable of any I possess. He took the character-marking spectacles from his pocket and fitted them to his eyes. Then he gave a whistle of surprise and turned his back upon his new friend. He had seen upon the Frenchman's forehead the letters E and C. "'Guess I've struck the wrong sort of scientist after all,' he muttered in a disgusted tone. His companion was quick to prove the accuracy of the character-marker. Seeing the boy's back turned, he seized a long iron bar that was used to operate the telescope and struck at Rob so fiercely that had he not worn the garment of protection, his skull would have been crushed by the blow. As it was, the bar rebounded with a force that sent the murderous Frenchman sprawling upon the roof. Rob turned about and laughed at him. "'It won't work, Professor,' he said. I'm proof against assassins. Perhaps you had an idea that when you had killed me, you could rob me of my valuable possessions. But they wouldn't be a particle of use to a scoundrel like you. I assure you, good morning, sir. Before the surprised and baffled scientist could collect himself sufficiently to reply, the boy was soaring far above his head and searching for a convenient place to alight that he might investigate the charms of this famed city of Paris. It was indeed a beautiful place, with many stately buildings lining the shady boulevards. So thronged were the streets that Rob well knew he would soon be the center of a curious crowd should he alight upon them. Already a few sky-gazers had noticed the boy moving high in the air above their heads, and one or two groups stood pointing their fingers at him. Pausing at length above the imposing structure of the Hotel Anglais, Rob noticed at one of the upper floors an open window, before which was a small iron balcony. Alighting upon this, he proceeded to enter, without hesitation, the open window. He heard a shriek and a cry of, Oh, Valor! and caught sight of a woman's figure as she dashed into the adjoining room, slamming and locking the door behind her. "'I don't know as I blame her,' observed Rob with a smile at the panic he had created. "'I suppose she takes me for a burglar and thinks I've climbed up the lightning rod.' He soon found the door leading into a hallway and walked down several flights of stairs until he reached the office of the hotel. "'How much do you charge per day?' 
he inquired, addressing a fat and pompous-looking gentleman behind the desk. The man looked at him in a surprised way, for he had not heard the boy enter the room. But he said something in French to a waiter who was passing, and the latter came to Rob and made a low bow. "'I speak the English very fine. What do you desire?' "'What are your rates by the day?' asked the boy. Ten francs, monsieur.' "'How many dollars is that?' "'Dollar American?' "'Yes, United States money.' "'Ah, oui. It is uh, two dollars, monsieur.' "'All right. I can stay about a day before I go bankrupt. Give me a room.' "'Certainement, monsieur. Have you the luggage?' "'No, but I'll pay in advance.' said Rob, and began counting out his dimes and nickels and pennies to the unbounded amazement of the waiter, who looked as if he had never seen such coins before. He carried the money to the fat gentleman, who examined the pieces curiously, and there was a long conference between them before it was decided to accept them in payment for a room for a day. But at this season the hotel was almost empty, and when Rob protested he had no other money, the fat gentleman put the coins into his cash box with a resigned sigh, and the waiter showed the boy to a little room at the very top of the building. Rob washed and brushed the dust from his clothes, after which he sat down and amused himself by viewing the pictures that constantly formed upon the polished plate of the record of events. Chapter 12 How Rob Saved a Republic while following the shifting scenes of the fascinating record, Rob noted an occurrence that caused him to give a low whistle of astonishment and devote several moments to serious thought. "'I believe it's about time I interfered with the politics of this republic,' he said at last as he closed the lid of the metal box and restored it to his pocket. "'If I don't take a hand here, there probably won't be a republic of France for very long.' As a good American, I prefer a republic to a monarchy. Then he walked downstairs and found his English-speaking waiter. "'Where's President Lubert?' he asked. "'The President? Ah, he is with his mansion. To be at his residence, monsieur.' "'Where's his residence?' The waiter began a series of voluble and explicit directions which so confused the boy that he exclaimed, "'Oh, much obliged.' and walked away in disgust. Gaining the street, he approached a gendarme and repeated his question, with no better result than before, for the fellow waved his arms wildly in all directions and roared a volley of incomprehensible French phrases that conveyed no meaning whatsoever to Rob. "'If I ever travel in foreign countries again,' said Rob, "'I'll learn their lingo in advance.' Why doesn't the demon get up a conversation machine that will speak all languages? By dint of much inquiry, however, and after walking several miles, following ambiguous directions, he at last managed to reach the residence of President Lubert. But there he was politely informed that the President was busily engaged in his garden and would see no one. Oh, that's all right, said the boy calmly. If he's in his garden, I'll have no trouble finding him. Then, to the amazement of the Frenchman, Rob shot into the air fifty feet or so, from which elevation he overlooked a pretty garden in the rear of the President's mansion. 
The place was protected from ordinary intrusion by high walls, but Rob descended within the enclosure and walked up to a man who was writing at a small table placed under the spreading branches of a large tree. "'Are you President Lubert?' he inquired with a bow. The gentleman looked up. "'My servants were instructed to allow no one to disturb me,' he said, speaking in excellent English. "'It isn't their fault I flew over the wall,' returned Rob. "'The fact is,' he added, hastily as he noted the President's frown, "'I have come to save the Republic, and I haven't much time to waste over a bundle of Frenchmen, either.' The President seemed surprised. "'Your name?' he demanded sharply. "'Robert Billings Jocelyn, United States of America.' "'Your business, Monsieur Jocelyn.' Rob drew the record from his pocket and placed it on the table. "'This, sir, is an electrical device that records all important events.' I wish to call your attention to a scene enacted in Paris last evening which may have an effect upon the future history of your country. He opened the lid, placed the record so the President could see clearly, and then watched the changing expressions upon the great man's face. First indifference, then interest, and then the next moment eagerness and amazement. Mon Dieu! he gasped. The Orleanists! Rob nodded. Yes, they've worked up a rather pretty plot, haven't they? The President did not reply. He was anxiously watching the record and scribbling notes on a paper beside him. His face was pale and his lips tightly compressed. Finally, he leaned back in his chair and asked, Can you reproduce the scene again? Certainly, sir, answered the boy. As often as you like. Will you remain here while I send for my minister of police? It will require but a short time. Call him up, then. I'm in something of a hurry myself, but now that I'm mixed up with this thing, I'll see it through. The president touched a bell and gave an order to his servant. Then he turned to Rob and said wonderingly, You are a boy. That's true, Mr. President, was the answer. But an American boy, you must remember. That makes a big difference, I assure you. The president bowed gravely to this. "'This is your invention?' he asked. "'No, I'm hardly equal to that, "'but the inventor has made me a present of the record, "'and it's the only one in the world.' "'It is a marvel,' remarked the President thoughtfully. "'More, it is a miracle. "'We are living in an edge of wonders, my young friend.' "'No one knows that better than myself, sir,' replied Rob. "'But tell me, can you trust your chief of police?' "'I think so.' said the President slowly. Yet since your invention has shown me that many men I have considered honest are criminally implicated in this royalist plot, I hardly know whom to depend upon. Then please wear these spectacles during your interview with the Minister of Police, sir, said the boy. You must say nothing while he is with us about certain marks that will appear upon his forehead, but when he is gone I will explain those marks so you will understand them. The President covered his eyes with the spectacles. Why, he exclaimed, I see upon your brow the letters... Stop it, sir, interrupted Rob with a blush. I don't care to know what the letters are, if it's all the same to you. The President seemed puzzled by this speech, but fortunately the Minister of Police arrived just then, and under Rob's guidance, the picture record of the Orleanist plot was reproduced before the startled eyes of the official. And now, 
said the boy. Let us see if any of this foolishness is going on just at the present. He turned to the opposite side of the record and allowed the president and his minister of police to witness the quick succession of events, even as they occurred. Suddenly the minister cried, Ha! and pointed a finger at a man disembarking from an English boat at Calais. He said excitedly, That, Your Excellency, is the Duke of Orleans in disguise. I must leave you for a time, that I may issue some necessary autos to my men. But this evening I shall call to confer with you regarding the best mode of suppressing this terrible plot. When the official had departed, the president removed the spectacles from his eyes and handed them to Rob. What did you see? asked the boy. The letters G and W. Then you may trust him fully, declared Rob, and explained the construction of the character marker to the interested and amazed statesman. And now I must go, he continued, for my stay in your city will be a short one, and I want to see all I can. The president scrawled something on a sheet of paper and signed his name to it, afterward presenting it with a courteous bow to his visitor. This will enable you to go wherever you please while in Paris, he said. I regret my inability to reward you properly for such great service as you have rendered my country, but you have my sincerest gratitude and may command me in any way. Oh, that's all right, replied Rob. I thought it was my duty to warn you, and if you look sharp, you'll be able to break up this conspiracy. But I don't want any reward. Good day, sir. He turned the indicator of his traveling machine and immediately rose into the air, followed by a startled exclamation from the President of France. Moving leisurely over the city, he selected a deserted thoroughfare to alight in, from whence he wandered unobserved into the beautiful boulevards. These were now brilliantly lighted, and crowds of pleasure-seekers thronged them everywhere. Rob experienced a decided sense of relief as he mixed with the gay populace and enjoyed the sights of the splendid city, for it enabled him to forget for a time the responsibilities thrust upon him by the possession of the demon's marvelous electrical devices. Chapter 13 Rob Loses His Treasures our young adventurer had intended to pass the night in the little bed at his hotel, but the atmosphere of Paris proved so hot and disagreeable he decided it would be more enjoyable to sleep while journeying through the cooler air that lay far above the earth's surface. So just as the clocks were striking the midnight hour, Rob mounted skyward and turned the indicator of the traveling machine to the east, intending to make the city of Vienna his next stop. He had risen to a considerable height, where the air was remarkably fresh and exhilarating, and the relief he experienced from the close, muggy streets of Paris was of such a soothing nature that he promptly fell fast asleep. His day in the metropolis had been a busy one, for, like all boys, he had forgotten himself in the delight of sightseeing, and had tired his muscles and exhausted his strength to an unusual degree. It was about three o'clock in the morning when Rob, moving restlessly in his sleep, accidentally touched with his right hand the indicator of the machine which was fastened to his left wrist, setting it a couple of points to the south of east. He was, of course, unaware of the slight alteration in his course, which was destined to prove of serious importance in the near future, 
for the boy's fatigue induced him to sleep far beyond daybreak, and during this period of unconsciousness he was passing over the face of European countries and approaching the lawless and dangerous dominions of the Orient. When at last he opened his eyes, he was puzzled to determine where he was. Beneath him stretched a vast sandy plain, and speeding across this he came to a land abounding in luxurious vegetation. The centrifugal force which propelled him was evidently, for some reason, greatly accelerated, for the scenery of the country he was crossing glided by him at so rapid a rate of speed that it nearly took his breath away. I wonder if I pass Vienna in the night, he thought. It ought not to have taken me more than a few hours to reach there from Paris. Vienna was at that moment fifteen hundred miles behind him, but Rob's geography had always been his stumbling block at school, and he had not learned to gauge the speed of the traveling machine, so he was completely mystified as to his whereabouts. Presently a village, having many queer spires and minarets, whist by him like a flash. Rob became worried and resolved to slow up at the next sign of habitation. This was a good resolution, but Turkestan is so thinly settled that before the boy could plan out a course of action, he had passed the barren mountain range of Thian Shan as nimbly as an acrobat leaps a jumping bar. This won't do at all, he exclaimed earnestly. The traveling machine seems to be running away with me, and I've I'm missing no end of sights by scooting along up here in the clouds. He turned the indicator to zero and was relieved to find it obey with customary quickness. In a few moments he had slowed and stopped, when he found himself suspended above another stretch of sandy plain. Being too high to see the surface of the plain distinctly, he dropped down a few hundred feet to a lower level, where he discovered he was surrounded by billows of sand as far as the eye could see. "'It's a desert, all right,' was his comment. "'Perhaps the old Sahara itself.' He started the machine again towards the east, and at a more moderate rate of speed skimmed over the surface of the desert. Before long he noticed a dark spot ahead of him, which proved to be a large body of fierce-looking men, riding upon dromedaries and carrying long rifles and crookedly shaped scimitars. "'Those fellows seem to be looking for trouble.' remarked the boy as he glided over them, and it wouldn't be exactly healthy for an enemy to get in their way, but I haven't time to stop, so I'm not likely to get mixed up in any rumpus with them. However, the armed caravan was scarcely out of sight before Rob discovered he was approaching a rich wooded oasis of the desert, in the midst of which was built the walled city of Yarkand. Not that he had ever heard of the place or knew its name, for few Europeans and only one American traveler had ever visited it, but he guessed it was a city of some importance for its size and beauty, and resolved to make a stop there. Above the high walls projected many slender white minarets, indicating that the inhabitants were either Turks or some race of Mohammedans. So Rob decided to make investigations before trusting himself to their company. A cluster of small trees with leafy tops stood a short distance outside the walls, and here the boy landed and sat down to rest in the refreshing shade. The city seemed as hushed and still as if it were deserted, and before him stretched the vast plain of white heated sands. 
He strained his eyes to catch a glimpse of the band of warriors he had passed, but they were moving slowly and had not yet appeared. The trees that sheltered Ra were the only ones without the city. Although many low bushes or shrubs grew scattering over the space between him and the walls, an arched gateway broke the enclosure at his left, but the gates were tightly shut. Something in the stillness and the intense heat of the midday sun made the boy drowsy. He stretched himself upon the ground beneath the dense foliage of the biggest tree and abandoned himself to the languor that was creeping over him. I'll wait until that army of the desert arrives, he thought sleepily. They either belong in this city or they have come to capture it, so I can tell better what to dance when I find out what the band plays. The next moment he was sound asleep, sprawling upon his back in the shade and slumbering as peacefully as an infant. And while he lay motionless, three men dropped in quick succession from the top of the city wall and hid among the low bushes, crawling noiselessly from one to another, and so approaching by degrees the little group of trees. They were Turks and had been sent by those in authority within the city to climb the tallest tree of the group and discover if the enemy was near. For Rob's conjecture had been correct, and the city of Yarkand awaited, with more or less anxiety, a threatened assault from its hereditary enemies, the Tartars. The three spies were not less forbidding in the appearance than the horde of warriors Rob had passed upon the desert. Their features were coarse and swarthy, and their eyes had a most villainous glare. Old-fashioned pistols and double-edged daggers were stuck in their belts, and their clothing, though of gorgeous colors, was soiled and neglected. With all the caution of the American savage, these Turks approached the tree, where, to their unbounded amazement, they saw the boy lying asleep. His dress and fairness of skin at once proclaimed to their shrewd eyes a European, and their first thought was to glance around in search of his horse or dromedary. Seeing nothing of the kind nearby, they were much puzzled to account for his presence, and stood looking down at him with evident curiosity. The sun struck the polished surface of the traveling machine, which was attached to Rob's wrist, and made the metal glitter like silver. This attracted the eyes of the tallest Turk, who stooped down and stealthily, unclasped the band of the machine from the boy's outstretched arm. Then, after a hurried but puzzled examination of the little instrument, he slipped it into the pocket of his jacket. Rob stirred uneasily in his sleep, and one of the Turks drew a slight but stout rope from his breast, and, with gentle but deft movement, passed it around the boy's wrists and drew them together behind him. The action was not swift enough to arouse the power of repulsion in the garment of protection, but it awakened Rob effectually, so that he sat up and stared hard at his captors. "'What are you trying to do?' he demanded. The Turks laughed and said something in their own language. They had no knowledge of English. "'You're only making fools of yourselves,' continued the boy wrathfully. "'It's impossible for you to injure me.' The three paid no attention to his words. One of them thrust his hand into Rob's pocket and drew out the electric tube. His ignorance of modern appliances was so great he did not know enough to push the button. Rob saw him looking down the hollow end of the tube and murmured, I wish it would blow your ugly head off. But the fellow, thinking the shining metal might be of some value to him, put the tube in his own pocket and then took from the prisoner the silver box of tablets. 
Rob writhed and groaned at losing his possessions in this way, and while his hands were fastened behind him, tried to feel for and touch the indicator of the traveling machine. When he found that the machine also had been taken, his anger gave way to fear, for he realized he was in a dangerously helpless condition. The third Turk now drew the record of events from the boy's inner pocket. He knew nothing of the springs that opened the lids, so after a curious glance at it, he secreted the box and the folds of his sash and continued the search of the captive. The character-marking spectacles were next extracted, but the Turk, seeing them as nothing but spectacles, stormfully thrust them back into Rob's pocket while his comrades laughed at him. The boy was now rifled of seventeen cents and pennies, a broken penknife, and a lead pencil, the last articles seeming to be highly prized. After they had secured all the booty they could find, the tall Turk, who seemed to be the leader of the three, violently kicked at the prisoner with his heavy boot. His surprise was great when the garment of repulsion arrested the blow and nearly overthrew the aggressor in turn. Snatching a dagger from his sash, he bounded upon the boy so fiercely that the next instant the Turk found himself lying upon his back three yards away, while his dagger flew through the air and landed deep in the desert sands. "'Keep it up!' cried Rob bitterly. "'I hope you enjoy yourselves!' The other Turks raised their comrade to his feet, and the three stared at one another in surprise, being unable to understand how a bound prisoner could so effectually defend himself. But at a whispered word from the leader, they drew their long pistols and fired point-blank into Rob's face. The volley echoed sharply from the city walls, but as the smoke drifted slowly away, the Turks were horrified to see their intended victim laughing at them. Uttering cries of terror and dismay, the three took to their heels and bounded toward the wall, where a gate quickly opened to receive them, the populace feeling sure the Tartar horde was upon them. Nor was this guess very far from wrong, for as Rob, sitting disconsolate upon the sand, raised his eyes, he saw across the desert a dark line that marked the approach of the invaders. Nearer and nearer they came, while Rob watched them and bemoaned the foolish impulse that had led him to fall asleep in an unknown land, where he could so easily be overpowered and robbed of his treasures. I always suspected these electrical inventions would be the ruin of me some day, he reflected sadly. And now I'm sidetracked and left helpless in this outlandish country, without a single hope of ever getting home again. They probably won't be able to kill me unless they find my garment of repulsion and strip it off me, but I'll never be able to cross this terrible desert on foot, and having lost my food tablets, I'd soon starve if I attempted it. Fortunately, he had eaten one of the tablets just before going to sleep, so there was no danger of immediate starvation. But he was miserable and unhappy and remained brooding over his cruel fate until a sudden shout caused him to look up.